Happy Saturday. It's November 27th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to the last Saturday of November. And the holiday season is upon us and we're all still digesting. I'm always a little relieved when I'm done with Thanksgiving because then I can go into like strict December mode, which is just more about drinking and eating hors d'oeuvres, let's be honest. (laughs) That's what you define as strict December mode? (laughs) Well, for some of us, yes. How was your holiday, Michael? What was happening in the Haney household? Very quiet and gratitude rich. That was where we were. And you? Oh, we took the year off this year. We took a Thanksgiving hiatus. We are somewhere island-like in the Caribbean. We're on an island in the Caribbean. We had grilled fish and rum punch for Thanksgiving, and it was great. We always host. It's always a big group of friends, family, and it's really fun. But after the past 18 months of pandemic, we were ready to take a bit of a break. And set yourself up for strict December. Yeah, exactly. Get in fighting shape for those next 30 days. I got to get into fighting mode. Look, it's December is really three weeks long, and every night better be maximized. And we're feeling the love and energy here in New York City. The shops are bustling. The decorations are out. The Rockefeller Center Christmas tree is twinkling. We are ready for action here. All right. Speaking of ready for action, shall we dive into this week's issue? I think we will, Michael. If the Gucci family is no stranger to its share of controversy, as everyone in the universe knows now that House of Gucci is out and about and in theaters. Hopefully you saw this like we did as a respite from the Thanksgiving rumble. And we have a really interesting review and not only of the movie, but also of that time period in Gucci history by none other than Tom Ford. Tom being the creative director. We know Tom now is the sexiest man in fashion and also the founder of his eponymous brand, which is very successful. But he was also the creative director of Gucci at a seminal moment in its history. In fact, as a lot of the drama unfolding in the new Ridley Scott film was happening in real life, Tom was at the helm of this brand. So his take on this, I don't want to spoil it by talking about it, but it's really worth reading. Yeah, and what's funny is it intersects with a story this week by Elena Claverino, about which I would call Milano a go-go. And it is about how Milan, which when Tom Ford, I think, went over to Gucci in, in the late mid to late 90s, Milan was a sleepy, gray, boring provincial city in Italy. And But as Elena points out, it's it with London in the midst of Brexit and Paris more and friendly than ever, Milan has sort of become Milano a go-go and Molto Milano, and it has kind of remade itself as this dynamic international city that is also drawing people from a young, ambitious, business-minded people from around the globe, moving there and transforming it. One of the things I liked about this story is that for some of us, Milan never really went away. I mean, we always, you and I tend to go to Milan at exciting moments in the city's annual trajectory, right? Which is during Fashion Week or Salone del Mobile, which is the big furniture and design fair. So those are moments when the city is really on fire. But as Elena writes, this used to be a place that was known as being sort of industrial. It wasn't the sexiest town to go to. It wasn't Rome and it was no Venice. Uh, But Milan always had a certain charm. And now it has refashioned itself as really a cultural capital and a cultural center, not only for the fashion industry, but for all other sorts of creative types and financially minded folks as well. And it's interesting because she ties it into Brexit, right? A lot of Americans and foreigners used to look to London as the de facto city to go to if they were looking to live abroad or have a different experience. And now with, given that London is no longer the center of of the universe in terms of Europe, Milan has become slightly 
you know, more prominent. And a lot of people are directing themselves to Milan because there's a lot of economic opportunity there. So it's a really interesting story. And as this is happening, there are lots of great cultural developments and cool restaurants and great shops and all sorts of things that are opening that are making the city really desirable to Gen X and Gen Z. So it's a great story. I'll tell you what else is great. It's an hour from Lake Como. It's an hour from Portofino. It's an hour from the mountains to go skiing. So yeah, it's sort of like one of those cities that you realize you can have great quality of life, even though I agree with Alana when you're in it. I remember, I remember when I started to go to Milan in the late 90s, it was dreary, gray, cold. It had that feel like just nothing was happening there. But it's since, I think, transformed itself. It still has the great restaurants like Giacomo and... Dailio, Biche. Santa Lucia. Oh God, we love them all. All our favorites. So yeah, it's good to see that. But it's also, there's this whole new layer of energy there. So it's a great place to put on your list for this winter. All right. If I disappear and you can't find me, I'll be at the Bulgari Hotel eating a delicious plate of pasta, watching television and drinking Negronis. Done. I'll just have you sign the check then. (laughs) Oh, we love Milan. But speaking of traveling, there's... So George Pendle has a piece this week asking what's luring the world's influencers to a small Mediterranean mining village. And it's an island, the Greek island of Milos, and it's having a moment. Why is that, Ashley? This is such a weird story. I mean, it's no Mykonos and it's no Santorini. And according to George, that's a very good thing. But there's this tiny little bizarre island. It's about a three and a half hour ferry ride from Athens. And it's this old industrial mining town where tourism, luxury tourism has really gone hand in hand with mining. But What's attracted the high fashion denizens to its rugged interior is it's not its rugged interior or its history. It's the fact that it's got more than 70 sort of, you might say, camera ready beaches for selfies, right? It's so weird. It's like even nature is now doing it just for the gram. Uh, The beaches there are so photogenic that even the plastic waste that washes up on the shore looks better than the plastic waste on other islands because the colors of the sand are so pronounced. It's black and gray and yellow versus kind of that beige color. So Instagrammers come and go like itinerant actors, as George writes, with only one line to say. So this is not necessarily a place where you want to go to relax and have an amazing vacation. It's where you want to go take pictures, get some new followers, and show everybody what a fabulous life you have. Instagrammers come and go. Speaking of Michelangelo, it's just like it's a poem, right? It's something. It's something, Michael. I don't know if I'd say a poem, but it's definitely something. So... Ashley, one thing I'm excited about for Thanksgiving weekend coming up is we have the release of Peter Jackson's three-part, six-hour Get Back documentary series, which he recut 57 hours of Michael Lindsay Hogg's footage of the Beatles' Let It Be documentary. And this week we have a wonderful, thoughtful assessment of the Beatles and their place in our lives from David Camp, who joins us here today. Welcome, David. Delighted to be here. So you've got our view from here this week, and you sort of take a look at the Beatles, as I said, and what strikes you about this moment in Beatlemania, and as, as I think of it as Beatle reanimania, and you found it the moment to be sort of poignant as well as celebratory, right? Well, reanimania is a really good term, which I'm going to steal from you, Michael. It's sort of like, it's Thanksgiving, but it feels like Christmas morning, because we've got this Beatles bounty of this extended Peter Jackson documentary where we're seeing all this heretofore unseen footage of the Beatles at work. And it's extraordinary to see that so vividly alive 50 odd years later. But for me, there's also a kind of melancholy about it because 
that Get Back documentary represents the last sort of untapped trove of Beatles material, original Beatles material. And so after this, my fear as a diehard Beatles fan, not so much a fear, but an acknowledgement is that there's really, there aren't that many new Beatles stories to tell after this. It's been kind of a cottage industry for 50 years and there will always be new Beatles product in terms of remixes and remasters. But in terms of new stories, this is kind of the end. I mean, look, Paul is going to turn 80. Ringo's 81, right? That long and winding road is you can see the horizon all of a sudden, right? Yeah. And it's not just because it's not purely a matter of baby boomer nostalgia, because I'm not a baby boomer, nor are you. First of all, my kids, and I, I find that fascinating, this story keeps captivating people, not just the music, but the story of the four men in the band. And in the essay I wrote for Airmail, I write that it's the richest narrative of the 20th century. And that's not some rhetorical provocation. I genuinely believe that. The Beatles are such a great story beyond their music in that they were four highly distinct personalities, but they're also four post-war young men from working class or middle class backgrounds who were really impressionable and had everything happened to them in the 60s, where they kind of served as proxies for everyone else. Like, oh, this is what it's like to take recreational drugs. This is what it's like to transition from music to film. This is what it's like to like take up transcendental meditation in Rishikesh. <laughs> well, and as you also point out, I mean, what I think is the same time you've got this Peter Jackson documentary coming out, Paul has along with the poet Paul Muldoon, released not an autobiography, but more a look at his lyrics, right? Which, as you parse out, really sort of give an insight into his childhood and his creative formation, right? Leads to, like, those great things like, who is Eleanor Rigby, right? Right. And that's, again, like, Paul McCartney has basically said he'll never write an autobiography. But in this book, which is basically a series of talks with Paul Muldoon in which he explicates the origins and intentions of, of the lyrics to a lot of his songs, mostly his Beatles songs, he tells these stories. And like when he was a little boy in Liverpool, as a scout, he participated in some good works program called Baba Job Week, in which the boys would get a shilling apiece for every good deed or chore they performed for an elderly pensioner who was lonely. And one of these was an old woman who kind of held Paul captive, young Paul, in her kitchen and told him stories. And this lonely person became the proxy for all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? Now they know they come from Paul's childhood. But And then as you tease out, one of the most sort of haunting lines for all of us in a song ever is in that. And, and he parses that out as well, right? Yes. The line you're alluding to, Michael, is uh, wearing a face that she keeps in a jar by the door. And... Um, the very first time, I actually don't remember the very first time I heard that because the Beatles are so omnipresent. They're like a utility, like running water or electricity. They're just there when you become a sentient human being. But that line since childhood has arrested me. And it's not just because it's poetic. It's because there's something hauntingly unknowable about it. What does that mean completely? Because it's not just about makeup, it's about identity. And um, what's interesting is that Paul McCartney kind of confirms that. He talks about how the line was inspired to some extent by his mother having a tin of Nivea cold cream, but he also acknowledges that to him, there was something scary about how women applied cold cream in those days, because it was a kind of thing like, are they becoming ghosts? Are their faces not quite real? Can't really articulate why it's scary, but he kind of acknowledged it. It, it felt nice to me to have that hunch confirmed that even he 
was trying to access something not totally articulable. Yeah, it's coming from that deep recess of the childhood. So important question, Dave. What's your favorite Beatles song then? Well, it's funny because I am really deep into lyrics right now. I'm actually part-time working as a lyricist for a stage musical. And so I've taken to admiring lyrical masterworks. And this isn't a sexy pick, but on Revolver, there's a really short Paul song called For No One, which is just so efficiently and economically telling a story of a broken romance. Now, my sexier choice would be A Day in the Life because you have John and Paul both contributing parts to it, and it is just so full of mystery and grandeur. But for no one, it's just how economical it is in telling the sad story, a love that should have lasted years. You know, another really poignant phrase. Yeah. Beautiful. Dave, as you're talking about your children and this next generation's appreciation of the Beatles, I wonder, do you think a band like this can ever exist again, given how dramatically the world has changed? And if so, who's the closest approximation that we have today of something like the Beatles with that same life force? You never say never because we don't know what the future holds. And I actually imagine that somehow there will be something as big as the Beatles in the next hundred years. And we just don't know what form it's going to take. But Ashley, I don't know if I can think of anyone who matches up to that level of impact because we had more of a monoculture in the 60s when everyone kind of listened to the same thing and watched the same thing. And it's so atomized now. And honestly, it kind of bugs me when people say, well, you know, BTS is like the Beatles because they're a boy band that has people screaming. And like, no, no, it's just, it's not nearly on the magnitude. I mean, Taylor Swift in a way, has that level of devoted fandom and people parsing her lyrics, looking for these meanings and looking at her album covers like they're runes, R-U-N-E-S, runes. But nothing currently approaches the level of kind of omnivorous interest they generated. Nor that sort of um, intergenerational. You look at this, what Jackson's got and, and all these things, and like you look at the concerts when they're still doing live concerts, it's only people basically under the age of 25. It's not dads of 45 taking their kids to the concert as well. It's It was purely just inter one generation, which is, I think, actually getting to that point of Beatles became, after they broke up, this thing that now 50 years of, of people share. It's such a rare thing. It is. And I was struck even like right before the end times, the lockdown times in December 2019, there was an official Beatles pop-up shop in Soho for the holidays that Christmas 2019. And I went there, of course, because I'm a sucker for this stuff. And what struck me was that I was the only middle-aged person there. Everyone else shopping for stuff was young. I was just going to say, Gen Z, not as bad as they seem. <laughs> Dave, I mean, your piece is also, you've used this word poignant, and it is poignant. The Beatles are so poignant for all of us. But there was a, also, you spoke with Rick Rubin about this piece, right? And he shared how he engineered a moment with Paul in another documentary. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So again, it's like we are insatiable as fans. I call myself a graduate level Beatles fan in the essay because there are people who are just casually listening to the music and enjoying it. And then there's people who really read every book that comes out, watch every documentary. And Rick Rubin, the producer, is also one such fanatic. He calls himself a Beatles fanatic. And he had this rather charming freeform series that came out this past summer on Hulu called McCartney 321. And again, it's the idea of like what's left to explore about Paul McCartney, to be honest. The guy's 80 years old, but how much more? But Rick Rubin said to me, he's also like arguably the most innovative bass player of all time. 
And that was an underexplored avenue of inquiry for him. So Rick Rubin being Rick Rubin, he had the clout to call Paul McCartney and said, well, what if we just did a little casual conversational TV series in which we discuss your bass playing and use that as a jumping off point to talk about other stuff. And indeed, Rick managed to pry loose some new insights from Paul simply by sitting at a mixing board, moving the faders up and down. So you hear the bass parts isolated in addition to the other Beatles uh, instrumental parts isolated. And it did inspire some new insights from Paul and some new anecdotes. So the idea is that it's not totally untappable, this well of Beatles history, but it's kind of starting to run dry. Props to Rick for finding something new. Yeah, and then there's the moment you quote in your story this week, where Rubin engineers this moment and he reads to Paul a quotation about his superior musicianship, as you describe it. And, and the quote is, he reads this, Paul, he says, Paul is one of the most innovative bass players that ever played bass. And half of the stuff that is going on now is in the 1960s and 70s is directly ripped off from his Beatle period. He has always been a bit coy about his bass playing, but he's a great, great musician. And then what does Ruben do, Dave? He reveals that the speaker of that quotation is John Lennon, and McCartney is palpably surprised and moved and said, basically says, I have never heard that before. He never said it to me but I'm glad he said it to someone. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful moment. But like, I think maybe for some of these beautiful moments, they come across the years and through different ways. Right. McCartney talks about how in those days, for all the things they did experience, all the ways that they innovated musically and socially, they were not, they did not come along in the era of men expressing their feelings, especially British men. <laughs> so they never had a chance to hug it out. And that's sort of a, another poignant aspect of this is you just think all the hatchets that could have been buried and all the things that could have been articulated had Lennon lived, or even had they just come along in a more enlightened time in that regard. You mentioned there were these four distinct personas, right? And I always find it when people say, well, who's your favorite Beatle, right? And I always say, like, the beauty of the Beatles is, like, they actually were, like, the four quadrants of everyone's personality. And yeah. it's like saying, like, well, what's your dominant personality trait? But there's really, like, it's sort of like where you are that day is who your. It's almost like a Rorschach, then, of who your favorite Beatle is. Like, I'm a little melancholic today, so I'm probably over where George is right now. <laughs> Right. And honestly, like, especially if you watch something like Get Back and you see Paul McCartney trying to be the peacemaker and also the I'm going to take charge because none of you can be bothered to do so. I see myself in that. I say, so I'm a Paul. But then some days I see myself as the sort of like free thinking, I can't be bothered with you. And I am George. And some days I'm the clever wordsmith. And I'm John. Really flattering myself right now, by the way. I'm none of these guys. Never will be. But all that said, you're exactly right, Michael, that people it drives me nuts is when people say they hate one of them. Paul and George are so great, but I hate Ringo. How could you hate Ringo? What is wrong with you? Wonderful musician, such a wit. And also, you know, again, the story is the arc of this. Ringo was born into a poor family, spent two years living in a tuberculosis ward, which is part of where he developed his interest in music. So from these Dickensian beginnings, he and George really had Dickensian childhoods to becoming, getting where they got. That is such a 20th century narrative. And that's why I say it's like, endlessly fascinating. Yeah, years ago, a couple of years ago, I found myself in Liverpool and I had like an hour before I had to get back on the train to London. And lo and behold, one of the places I went to see was George's childhood home, which I, to you to write is truly Dickensian. It is truthfully on a dead end, like 
street and the house is just it's about six feet wide and you read his by you know his, his his life story they didn't even have like plumbing in the house right outdoor toilets again you think of the distance they traveled and as you said like what they their coming of age and and what they experienced from probably 15 until now they've touched so many touchstones of the 20th and 21st centuries and also the warp speed at which it happened george harrison was 27 when the Beatles broke up. I mean, no, no, you think of that, it's like from 18 to 27 and you basically change music and pop culture history and then you blow up the thing that you did it with. Like, it's over, done, you walk away. Right, and he died at age 59, but I've said to my wife, like, she's a George fan. I said, he was 59, but we can take solace that like in Beatle years, he was about 170 because he had <laughs> so much life experience into those 59 years. Yeah, it's a beautiful way of putting it. Ashley, anything else you'd like to add? No, I think we just want to thank David for his unique insight into this. Are David and I geeking out too much? <laughs> you guys are like seriously showing your freak flags, but I'm here for it. Well done. Ashley, are you roundly condemning us with that statement? Not at all. It's just an endorsement. Love it. Ashley, who's your favorite Beatle? I don't have one, Michael. Do you have a favorite Beatles song? You guys are embarrassing me now. Probably Blackbird. I don't know. That's a good choice. Blackbird's beautiful. It's the most cliched ones, probably. I don't know. I think that's a really good choice. It's a beautiful choice. Well, thank you so much, David. This was great. And we love your story. And thank you so much for your unique point of view here. My pleasure. See you later, Dave. Thanks for being on. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. All right, Michael, it's officially the holiday season. Now, I know you're going to be out and about singing carols and doing shopping and drinking eggnog, but do you have anything at all? No, no, and no. No, no, no. No, no, no. No, not all three of those. Those are not part of my uh, crazy December or whatever you've got your thing labeled, okay? No, but I'll be doing other things. So what do you want to tell me? All right, well, tell us. Do you have anything at all you can recommend in those precious few hours that we are at home with nothing to do? Uh, I do. And you know what? In all the talk the last couple of weeks about House of Gucci, there's a film that's kind of snuck under the radar and opens this weekend here in the U.S. and later, I think, uh, in other places. It's the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie, Licorice Pizza. And I have not seen it. I've only watched it, the four-minute trailer, which is cut to the soundtrack of David Bowie singing Life on Mars, which gets you right away. It's set in 1973. It's a romance about a teen boy wooing an older woman. The boy is Cooper Hoffman, the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And the young woman is Alana Haim of Haim. So I swear, on the basis of a four-minute trailer, I'm all in on this film. You've got cameos as well by Sean Penn, playing a William Holden-like dissolute end-of-career actor. You've got Bradley Cooper playing Barbara Streisand's real-life boyfriend, John Peters. It looks like it's the best of Paul Thomas Anderson, who, to me, is one of our greatest working filmmakers. So I'm going to put that on my list for the weekend. And as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to go see it. I'm into it. You know, he did a documentary about Haim. That's probably where he just grabbed her, right? Yeah, I love this. Haim is one of my favorite bands. The Haim sisters are so talented. Yeah, the reviews on this movie are great. And what is your favorite PTA film? Boogie Nights? Pookie Nights creep me out a little, made me sad. I would say it's somewhere between Magnolia oh. and um, There Will Be Blood. Okay. I mean, I, you can't beat the Magnolia soundtrack, by the way. 
No, you can't beat the Magnolia soundtrack. You can't beat the intricacy of the writing and the, how he weaves it all together at the end. And it just is, I think that's probably the one that I oftentimes see the world through that one. Wow. Okay. Those who want to key into Michael Haney's psyche, just watch Magnolia. It will tell you everything you need to know. And you? Oh, I don't know. I would say probably Punch Drunk Lover, Boogie Nights, but I just love Sandler. I love Sandler when he's doing his non-comic thing. I like Sandler at all times, so... Yeah. What can I do? Did not like Phantom Thread, but loved There Will Be Blood, as I said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was excellent. I drink it all up. <laughs> I love it. And you, my dear, what can I drink all up of your milkshakes? <laughs> Okay. I'm reading the new novel from Louise Erdrich. My father-in-law gave it to me for Thanksgiving. It's part of a tradition that we have in our family where everybody shares a book. Whoever's hosting Thanksgiving buys a book for everyone at the table. So this was my gift this year. We do a book exchange. So she won the Pulitzer Prize in 2021 for The Night Watchmen. Her new novel is called The Sentence. And it's fun. It takes us back to her native Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is where Erdrich runs a bookstore, in fact. And it takes place in a bookstore and it's a bit of a ghost story. And it takes place in a city that is still suffering from the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd. So it brings in a lot of current events. Again, like her output's unbelievable. The fact that she managed to put out a novel of this quality during the pandemic when most of us were just baking bread. So this is another great accomplishment of hers. She's incredibly talented and it's a very fun, fast-paced read. Wonderful. Well, on that note, Michael, December awaits. Let's get out there. Get out there. Get your shopping. Get in line for the supply chain problems. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Emily Davis is our CMO, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thank you for joining us.